Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the new episode of the Glenn Greenwald podcast. At some point, we may come up with a more inventive name for this program, or we might not. This name might just turn into something inventive. It's been a couple of weeks since uh, I've done this show. As many of you know, I do a weekly show uh, that I co-host with the Canadian journalist Q. Anthony that is every week at on Thursday, this is the new time, Thursday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. And we try and do this show at least once a week. Um, the last couple of weeks have been very busy with uh, a lot of journalism, some travel. So I haven't been able to do it, but I'm excited to be back for this evening to talk about what I consider to be a really, not just interesting, but consequential episode, which is the intensifying campaign to force Spotify to remove the person who is by far the most popular and influential podcaster in the United States, Joe Rogan. And I want to discuss not just the specific components of this controversy, but also the broader implications of what is clearly a growing liberal fixation with censorship in general, with this fixation on silencing anyone they perceive as their political adversary and targeting any platforms that permit free discourse, that permit any dissent from core liberal pieties. So before I get into that, I just want to review a couple of uh, the components of the format of this app, which really excites me. Um, uh, for any of you who are new to the app, one of the most exciting features of it, at least for me, is the interactivity that it enables. I just wrote an article on Substack about all the things I'm going to talk about, and I'll probably cover some of that ground. I'm sure I'll cover some things I didn't include in that article, but the new component, the new aspect is that any of you by raising the raised hand feature on this app by, I think, just clicking the phone icon will indicate that you have a question or a comment that will automatically put you into the queue. And when I'm done sort of reviewing the few points that I want to talk about, and I'll leave as much time as possible for this, uh, I'll just start taking one by one uh, questions or comments from any of you in the sequence in which you appear in the queue. And that will enable my uh, readership, my audience here on social media and the like to voice criticisms, questions, ideas, and it's provided some really great interaction thus far. I regard interaction with one's readers as one of the most important distinguishing features of what we can call new media or media in the internet age, which is very interactive, very confrontational with the model of old media, which was this sort of top-down journalist speaking from a mountaintop, never hearing from the people uh, who were their readers, except maybe an occasional editor or the editor that they kind of laughed at and, and threw in the uh, proverbial garbage can. So I think uh, the kind of forced interaction that uh, the internet era has brought to journalism, though sometimes abusive and sometimes annoying, on the whole, has provided a, a crucial form of accountability. Um, so anyway, that's uh, that feature for any of you who want to do that. Now, let me talk a little bit about the specific Spotify campaign. Um, I don't actually think that liberals were ready to take on 
Joe Rogan and Spotify. If you're going to do something like target somebody this influential, this significant in the media ecosystem, you really need to make sure you have a clear plan in place and all of your ducks in a row, all of your weapons aligned. You need to be really prepared to do it because if you succeed, it can be a major advancement to your goal, which is clearly the liberal agenda at the moment of forcing major technology platforms to remove or silence or prohibit or bar any political adversaries who question or dissent from core of liberal orthodoxies. But if you fail, if you launch this very prominent public campaign to have someone silenced and you fail, it can be quite devastating because it can remove the sheen, the kind of uh, it can demystify the power that you're trying to wield. And it can show that if Spotify can defy these demands for censorship, this effort to render their platform radioactive and toxic, if they don't obey censorship demands, then it can embolden other platforms to start doing it as well. So usually the censorship campaigns have targeted either people who are pretty powerless all the time people get banned from YouTube by Google or Facebook or Twitter, and they're not really people you ever hear about. They're not significant enough to generate a news cycle, and that's what makes them easy targets. It happens all the time, not just to very small uh, platform people, but even people with decent-sized platforms on a virtually weekly basis. People are getting banned for ideological deviation or thought thought crimes. So often they get banned for saying things that six months later becomes not just acceptable to say, but conventional wisdom. People who, for example, in March of 2020 were urging people to wear masks were in contravention to the consensus of the scientific establishment of Dr. Fauci and the World Health Organization who are urging people not to wear masks and saying that masks were ineffective only for six months or three months later for them to do a complete 180 and say that masks were absolutely urgent. People throughout the first part of the pandemic, really throughout most of 2020, were banned, were deplatformed, were censored, were kicked off major internet platforms for suggesting that the origins of COVID were likely not zoonotic, leaping from animals to human, but instead were either man-made or the byproduct of a lab leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which just coincidentally happens to be the city where the coronavirus emerged and just so happens to conduct exactly the kind of research into coronavirus in bats that spawned this pandemic. And then a year or so after huge numbers of people got banned, the official position of the U.S. government became, we don't actually know the origins of COVID and we ought to investigate. And then social media companies did a 180 and said it's now permissible to question the origins of COVID or even opine that the more likely explanation is the lab leak rather than the naturally occurring virus. So oftentimes it's just people who aren't very powerful who are 
guilty of spreading what liberal orthodoxy proclaims to be disinformation and occasionally hate speech. That's how it began. Hate speech was the favored metric for years to justify liberal censorship. But now they want to silence so many people who they can't credibly accuse of engaging in hate speech, like Joe Rogan, who just, you know, 18 months ago supported Bernie Sanders for president. And so this new disinformation model of censorship is now the favored one because it's so elastic. It's so elusive. It's so evasive of any concise definition, which is what makes it so potent. It can be anything at any time precisely because it means nothing. So that's one category of people who are typically targeted with censorship or people with no platforms, but who deviate in some way from liberal ideology. The other platform are people who are more prominent, who have a bigger platform, but are way off key from good liberal ideology. The most prominent online censorship cases that really kicked off this new craze that began in the Trump era of insisting that people with bad views be deplatformed. The two beginning cases that became the kind of uh, model for how online censorship is now engineered were Milo Yiannopoulos and Alex Jones. And Milo was, you know, miles outside of what was deemed to be the boundaries of decent liberal discourse. And so was Alex Jones. And, and so the argument at the time was, this isn't going to be a censorship craze. This is just a special, isolated step that we're going to have to take for uniquely dangerous voices. And of course, many people at the time, myself included, but many other people, including some people on the board of, of Facebook who came out of this ethos, the Silicon Valley ethos of a free and open internet, warned that there was no chance that this was going to be an isolated tactic for the Milos and Alex Joneses of the world, that like all powers, it was going to gradually expand and then rapidly expand to start including voices closer and closer to mainstream ideology, but still just slightly outside of what was deemed permissible, whether on the right or the left. And so we do still see people with large platforms who are being censored or deplatformed all the time. One of the more disturbing cases that we seem to have forgotten in the wake of the focus on Joe Rogan was the decision by Google to first temporarily suspend and then permanently ban Dan Bonino from using YouTube. And it's amazing because he is somebody with a gigantic platform. He has millions of, 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 of followers, millions of listeners. He's a host on a Fox News program on the weekend that has very high ratings, that is very uh, widely, wa- highly watched. Um, he's a popular commentator. Millions of Americans consider him mainstream. And his crime was he published a video on YouTube in which he said that he believes cloth masks are ineffective or worthless in preventing transmission of the Omicron variant. 
And Google decided that this was such a transgression of COVID orthodoxy that it was deemed to be COVID disinformation. And he received a seven-day ban for having the audacity to express that view, even though that view was the view of Dr. Fauci at the beginning of the pandemic. The stated view of Dr. Fauci was that masks are unnecessary and ineffective and might even be counterproductive. In emails back and forth between Fauci and other immunologists, they openly discussed the fact that they didn't believe that masks were effective. But two years into the pandemic, the idea that masks are ineffective or useless in the face of Omicron is a perfectly mainstream view. You hear it all the time from even experts brought on to CNN, the venue of liberal conventional wisdom who say cloth masks do basically nothing. Biden administration scientists who resigned have said that the scientific establishment has perpetrated a a gigantic fraud on the public by knowingly misleading people to believe that cloth masks were more effective than for many, many months they knew them to be. And that's why some people advocate for the abolition of mask mandates. Others advocate for the distribution of N95 masks. Many, many people now say that cloth masks are ineffective to prevent transmission of the Omicron variant. For whatever reason, when Dan Bongino went on YouTube and said this, Google decided it warranted a seven-day ban or suspension, which shows how arbitrary these powers are exercised. And he used a alternative, an alternate YouTube uh, channel to announce that as a result of this abusive decision to temporarily suspend him for expressing a view about masks that is shared widely by many experts, he was going to cease immediately using YouTube and publish all of his videos exclusively on Rumble, which is the free speech competitor to YouTube created by a Canadian liberal in 2013 with apolitical intentions just simply to be a venue for small content creators who are abandoned by YouTube to be able to monetize their cooking videos or their pet videos. But because Rumble believes in the virtues of free discourse and has rejected the hubris required to believe that it should be the arbiters of what is true and false on complex scientific and political questions, it's become a haven for free speech. I went there. I now use it as my primary venue for my video journalism. And Dan Bongino announced that he was going to use it exclusively into the future and no longer use YouTube. And because he broke the rule, the rule being that YouTube told him you're not allowed to used our platform for seven days, they permanently banned him. So that's an example, and there are lots of others, of people with very large platforms continuing to be deplatformed and banned. But still, you have to be pretty far out from liberal ideology in order for that to happen. Those are really the two categories. People who are powerless and unknown and relatively obscure or people who have big platforms, but are so far or perceived to be so far to the right that they can be banned without provoking lots of controversy. Joe Rogan 
is neither of those. He falls into neither of those categories. He's obviously not somebody with an obscure small platform. Quite the contrary. He's arguably the single most influential American political commentator in the country. You could really make a strong case for that proposition. In fact, I think it's difficult to argue that given the size of his audience, the youth of his audience, the fact that they tend to be not subservient to one of the two political parties and therefore more influenceable than, say, an MSNBC viewer or the standard Fox viewer. He has really developed a remarkably innovative platform, pioneered this new way of speaking to people that has on its own kind of created this new sector of the media ecosystem that in many ways is becoming more powerful than the existing legacy corporate outlets. And so I always knew it was just a question of time before they came after Rogan. They had to do it. They have to do it. One of the things they tried doing, which is what they always tried when they saw how large his platform was growing, is they tried to co-opt him. Basically, they tried to offer him a deal. They said, look, we're going to let you keep this platform. You're on Spotify, one of the largest and most important mainstream corporate platforms. You have the $100 million contract. We're going to let you be as long as you don't go too far out there. As long as when we signal to you that you've really upset us, you'll voluntarily reel yourself in. And it was in September of 2020 when people were in their highest state of hysteria as the presidential election was approaching that Spotify employees first began organizing and the Wall Street Journal reported were even threatening to strike if Spotify didn't remove some of the previous episodes of Rogan's program that they found particularly offensive. And Rogan's response to those efforts was extremely clear. His message was an extremely clear one. It was unmistakable. And it was the opposite of appeasement. He, the next week after that controversy emerged, invited onto his program Alex Jones which is about as aggressive and assertive a way of expressing defiance and rejection of the deal that he was basically being offered, which is we'll leave you alone for now as long as you don't go too far, as long as you show some willingness to work with us. And in the pandemic, he has doubled down on that approach. There are some scientists who are just dissidents of the core Fauci World Health Organization series of orthodoxies that he puts onto his show. I think the thing that was really alarming for the liberal establishment was when Twitter recently banned uh, Dr. Robert Malone, who has unquestionable credentials when it comes to vaccines and covid People claim he's the inventor of the mRNA vaccines. Uh, There's debate about whether that's 
a legitimate title, but certainly he played a significant role in the research that led to those. His credentials are undeniable. And the day after Twitter banned him permanently for the crime of dissenting from the orthodoxies in the field in which he's a specialist, Rogan put him on the show. I think it was pre-scheduled, but it was perfect the way it worked. Twitter banned him. And then people knew I can now go listen to this banned prohibited voice on Joe Rogan's show. And it became, I think, the most listened to podcast episode ever. 40 or 50 million people were glued to their phones or their monitors, either while it was broadcast shortly thereafter or in the weeks following, quadrupling, if not more, the audience of even the largest major network news shows. So when you have somebody who's so defiant, who is such a heretic, building that kind of an audience and so clearly refusing because of the fuck you money that he has, because of the full-scale security he enjoys, to take orders about who we can and can't talk to and what views he can and can't air. When you have somebody who's so unwilling to play ball like that and whose platform is getting too powerful, you really have no choice. You've got to destroy that person. You have to take them off the air, no matter how important they are, no matter how much money Spotify has invested But you have to do it when you're ready, when you have all the groundwork laid, when you have all the studies from bullshit think tanks and anti-extremist organizations published purporting to quantify the harm that he's demonstrated to the public. All of that needs to be created. The propaganda needs to be fortified before you're ready to take on somebody like Joe Rogan and pressuring Spotify to jettison its most valuable corporate asset. Now, I think that there's a perception that it's harder to do than it really is. I think a lot of people think Joe Rogan is Spotify's biggest star. They paid him $100 million. There's no way they're going to kick him off because of the guests that he put on. They knew what they were getting into. They're a gigantic company. And they're just not going to do that. And I just want to give you a few reasons why that assumption is unwarranted. First of all, let me just remind you of what happened with Megyn Kelly. Megyn Kelly was arguably the biggest star in Fox News, especially after Bill O'Reilly was fired slash separated from Fox News. Megyn Kelly, they were building Fox News around her. When she confronted Donald Trump, when she was moderating that presidential debate, they saw in her the opportunity to demonstrate that they were a real journalistic outlet. She got a lot of applause from most of the media. And she did her job. You know, she did her job. I didn't love that question that she asked, but she was there not to be a toady to anybody, but to ask hard questions. And that was a completely legitimate question that she asked, in my view. Um, And Fox News viewed her as one of its most important assets, if not the most important. She was making $10 to $12 million a year. 
as a primetime host with very robust ratings. And when NBC decided that they wanted to hire her away because they wanted a conservative voice to give them the facade of being ideologically balanced, they knew they were going to have to come up with enormous sums of money to lure her away from Fox. And they did. They did. They offered her essentially a $22 million a year contract. The total value of the contract was $69 million for three years. They were going to make her an anchor on their franchise flagship Today Show. They were going to give her primetime specials, kind of try and turn her into Diane Sawyer. She was central to their plans. She was not just some after-the-fact ancillary hire. You don't sign a $69 million contract with somebody unless they're very, very uh, important to your future plans that goes to the highest levels of that media corporation. And she started in June of 2017, had a few bumps. Her ratings weren't as good as they were expecting. There was a lot of internal resistance to her because she had committed the crime of being perceived as a political conservative. And with basically within one year of her being on the show, on that network, she made her now notorious blackface comments, which if you go back and look at them, they were really quite benign. She, unlike huge numbers of beloved liberal politicians like Justin Trudeau or the liberal talk show host Jimmy Kimmel or Virginia's most recent Democratic governor, Ralph Northrup, and countless others. Megyn Kelly never actually wore blackface. What she did was she rhetorically wondered whether in the modern age there could be a use of blackface that shouldn't be regarded as malicious, in particular white children who have adulation for African-American sports heroes or actors who dressed up as them for Halloween, not for mockery, but as a, a, as a homage uh, to pay tribute. She was just asking, she was just raising that question, whether there's now a benign use of kids dressing up as their favorite black actors, white kids. And, and for that, there was a, gigantic, intense storm of liberal indignation. And NBC was faced with the choice of keeping this TV star on whom they had banked and signed to a, let's call it a $70 million contract, or appeasing liberal anger and firing her knowing that they would have to pay her anyway to do nothing. And they chose the latter. They fired Megyn Kelly. And they proceeded to pay her the balance of the contract for the next two years, even though she never once appeared on NBC again. That's how powerful liberal cultural hegemony is right now. They're dominant in media. They're dominant in academia. They're dominant in Hollywood. That is a pillar of institutional power that you should never underestimate. And if you start to... Look at what happened with Megyn Kelly. Or look at what happened in January of 2020 when the social media platform Parler 
designed to guarantee free speech and be an alternative to Twitter's increasingly repressive, hands-on, quote-unquote, content moderation, which is the liberal euphemism for censorship, became the number one platform, the number one most downloaded app in all of America on both Google and Apple stores. More than Instagram, more than Facebook, more than TikTok, more than Twitter, more than every single other app. Parler was number one in the Apple store on January 7th, 2021, as a result of Twitter having banned Donald Trump. And right when Parler was the most popular app, more Americans wanting it and downloading it than any other, Democratic Party politicians like AOC went on to Twitter and demanded that Google and Apple remove Parler from its store, from their stores, and then that Amazon remove parlor from their web service and all three of those Silicon Valley monopolies complied with the orders, the quote unquote requests from the party that was about to assume majoritarian control in Washington, control over the white house and both houses in Congress and parlor was zapped away from the internet. And there's another example that I just want to allude to that people have forgotten, which is the example of Glenn Beck who People have forgotten, produced ratings when he was on Fox News, completely unprecedented. He was a host of a 5 o'clock p.m. afternoon show and was the most watched program on cable. His influence really started to scare the establishment. And they got him, they got Fox, Fox News, to separate Glenn Beck from Fox, despite those enormous ratings. Now, part of that was because there was a vulnerability spot with corporate advertisers who were scared away out of advertising on Glenn Beck's show. But all I'm, the only point I'm really underscoring here is that there is nobody so big, so influential with such a big platform that they're immunized from liberal censorship campaigns. And I, Obviously, you know, I don't think Spotify is going to remove Joe Rogan anytime soon. But let's look at what happened to see how nefarious this liberal obsession with censorship is. Think about what has happened here to create this controversy, to create a significant loss of market capitalization from Spotify over the last several weeks as its stock price declined as a result of this controversy, there was no plan to initiate a campaign to get Joe Rogan kicked off Spotify. They weren't ready. But Neil Young, a 76-year-old faded music star, who was obviously a really significant musical uh, star in the 1960s into the 1970s, everyone over... I don't know, 55, knows Neil Young. Probably a lot of other people younger than that have been exposed to his music. But he doesn't pack a lot of power in the current musical industry, in the current music industry. He's old. He's a faded star. And all he did was kind of pop up on his own and say to Spotify, you either take Joe Rogan off 
of your platform because in my view, he's spreading COVID disinformation and that's dangerous. Or you take my music off. He presented it as an ultimatum. And Spotify, obviously, was not going to kick Joe Rogan off in order to keep Neil Young's music on. So they removed Neil Young. But now Joni Mitchell, very similar to Neil Young, once a very big star in the 1960s, 1970s, but she's 76 or 78, same age as Neil Young, posted a letter to her website saying, I stand in solidarity with Neil Young. I also want my music removed from Spotify's website. And that was it. Neil Young and Joni Mitchell caused this degree of pressure on Spotify. Delete Spotify as a hashtag trended for two or three days on Twitter. It's amazingly ironic that they're basically saying, I'm going to go and listen to Neil Young and Joni Mitchell on Apple. Think about that. The social activism for liberals is to demand that you give your money to Apple, the richest and most powerful corporation in human history outside of Google, one that's been repeatedly linked to slave labor and their to, to produce their products. Giving money to Apple is, I guess, the liberal idea of subversive social justice activism because the quest to get rid of and silence Joe Rogan is so important that they're willing to turn over their cash to one of the richest corporations in human history and arguably one of the most exploitative. But this degree of pressure was put on Spotify from the spontaneous, unplanned outburst from two almost 80-year-old musicians. Now imagine if, instead of this being Neil Young and Joni Mitchell issuing this ultimatum, that Beyonce or Taylor Swift do, or Ed Sheeran, or a incredibly popular rapper, then Spotify does have a hard decision to make. And you could also see a tipping point being reached where right now, the way you make a statement is by doing what Neil Young and and Joni Mitchell did, which is leaving Spotify in protest of Joe Rogan. But if enough musicians do what they did, and I would be shocked, given the way that musicians are very enamored of believing that they transcend music and they love to show that they're political activists on the right side of history or whatever they think of themselves... You could easily see a lot more musicians, including much bigger names, more relevant names in the music industry, doing the same thing, where a tipping point would be reached, where it's no longer that you make a statement by leaving Spotify, but you make a statement by remaining, so that Spotify becomes radioactive. This is the real goal of what liberals are trying to do. What they do in the first instance is they say... We're appealing to your social, your sense of social justice, your conscience as a good corporate actor. So we want you voluntarily to comply with our requests that you remove this person on the grounds that they're disseminating hate speech or spreading disinformation. And if those sites are defiant and refuse, 
that's when the punishment needs to kick in. Otherwise, those requests will be impotent in the future. And the way these punishments work is that you just start maligning the reputation, not only of these sites, but also of the executives and the shareholders and the investors and the founders who are responsible for those decisions. So that you can imagine in a month or two months, it being the case that if you want to be welcomed and accepted in good, decent, liberal society, you just can't be on Spotify. Because Spotify will take on the reputation as a supporter of COVID disinformation, someone who platforms misinformation and anti-vax sentiment and is responsible for the deaths of large numbers of human beings. And if you doubt that that's an effective tactic, just consider the fact that Facebook and Google and Twitter never, ever intended to be active censors of political speech. That is not something they wanted. In part because those tech companies grew out of Silicon Valley that had this libertarian ethos or even an ideology that the internet should be free. So ideologically, the people who founded social media companies didn't want to be in the business of censoring. But also just out of business self-interest. If you're a social media platform, you want to grow. You want to add users to your platform. You don't want to be banning users. And you certainly don't want to be banning entire political movements or entire political ideologies. So why did Facebook and Google and Twitter and the rest start doing that to the point that they banned the sitting elected president of the United States? How did that happen? It's because these media corporations, the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, CNN, for all of their problems, for all of the trust and faith that they've lost, deservedly so, when they unite, they still do have a big megaphone. And they began in this concerted effort to say Mark Zuckerberg is responsible for the emergence of fascism in the United States. He's responsible for the destruction of democracy. He has blood on his hands from COVID disinformation and from allowing the insurrection, quote unquote, to take place. They said the same thing about Jack Dorsey. They said the same thing about Google executives. And you can be a billionaire and people think billionaires are immune from those kinds of pressures. Well, if you're a billionaire, why do you care what people say about you? Billionaires are still human beings which means they have a human psyche. And that human psyche is the psyche of a social and political animal developed over many thousands of years to crave societal acceptance and to fear being ostracized and shunned and scorned. No person wants to live in a society where they have the reputation of being someone who's reckless and sociopathic and responsible for all of society's ills. Those are very powerful narratives to create about somebody. Billionaires care about their reputation. They care about their legacy. They care about their ability to be liked in society. But they also care about their the viability of their business 
And if these media corporations succeed in making these platforms so radioactive and toxic, then they will be the province only of people who don't care about liberal opinion. And that can be very damaging for a business. And that's what makes it such an effective tactic. That's the reason why Silicon Valley began to censor. I know that there are some people who believe that Silicon Valley censors because the leaders of Silicon Valley companies are leftists and they want to silence conservative voices. There may be some truth to that. Sheryl Sandberg is obviously a big donor to the Democratic Party. But by and large, if you look at the trajectory and the history of Silicon Valley, that was not their intention when creating these social media platforms. They don't censor because they want to. They were censored because this obligation has been foisted upon them. And now it's not just societal pressure and reputational attacks, but there are overt threats emanating from the Democratic Party. In the last 14 months, Democratic-led committees in Congress and the House and the Senate have subpoenaed the leading executives of Facebook, Google, and Twitter to testify before them five times, five times. And each time with increasing virulence, the members of the committees, the Democratic members of the committees are increasingly explicit in saying, our problem with you is not that you don't censor enough. Our problem with you is that you censor insufficiently. Let me restate that. I think I reversed that. Our problem with you is not that you're censoring too much. Our problem with you is that you're not censoring enough. And they are saying, if you do not begin removing more content that we deem hateful or we deem harmful, you will suffer the fate of legal and regulatory reprisals. We will enact laws to weaken your company. We will use our regulatory agencies to crack down on you. These are threats that are coming from the Democratic-controlled federal government against these companies, forcing them to censor or face legal punishment. Now, there's this idea that a lot of pro-censorship liberals have that you hear all the time. That, look, these are private companies and they can do whatever they want. If they decide they want to disassociate themselves from a certain ideology that's their right, and the government has no right to tell private corporations what to do. It's very bizarre hearing that from liberals, given that that's classic libertarian economic theory. And the fundamental ideology of liberals has always been the opposite, that the government does have the right and the duty to regulate corporate behavior. There's never been this laissez-faire attitude of private corporations have the right to do whatever they want. It's particularly bizarre to hear that coming from liberals about these particular companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple, given that the Democratic-led Antitrust Committee has issued a report, now joined by many Republicans, that concludes that these companies are classic monopolies. They're not just like any other private corporation. They're in violation of the antitrust laws, which means they don't have the right to just do whatever they want. They're more like a public utility or a public service. But leaving that aside, there is a clear and long history of First Amendment law that says that if the government pressures private companies to censor, 
in ways that the political officials themselves could not because of the First Amendment, that that pressure or coercion on private actors to censor can itself be a violation of a free speech clause. The classic seminal case is a 1964 Supreme Court ruling where a zoning board in Rhode Island was offended by certain books that were displayed on the shelves by a local bookstore. And the zoning officials began threatening in this very menacing way the book sh- the bookstore with all kinds of fines and zoning violations if they didn't cease carrying these books. And the publisher of the book sued the zoning board. It went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said the First Amendment prohibits state officials from directly censoring. They obviously couldn't legislate and ban those books. But it also prohibits state officials from threatening or coercing private actors to censor for them which I think is what's happening when it comes to the Democratic Party in Washington. So you have this confluence of influences on these big tech companies, the social stigma and shame from media corporations that are beloved by liberals, the legislative and political pressure coming from Washington. And you also have, and this shouldn't be underestimated, a very liberal workforce internally that does believe in censorship. There's all kinds of pressure in Facebook, in Google, in Twitter to censor more and more that comes from their own workplace. And it's very difficult to resist the demands of your own workforce. You can create all kinds of internal instability if you just ignore it. So there's this confluence of events, of influences, generating this always increasing censorship craze on what was supposed to be this technology, the internet, that would liberate us from centralized state and corporate control and instead is becoming, between surveillance and censorship, it's opposite. One of the most potent means of centralized power ever developed. And the final point I want to make about all this is it is almost impossible to overstate how central censorship has become as a political project to American liberalism. It is their religion. They, they cannot abide the idea that people who see the world differently than they, who question or dissent from their most sacred orthodoxies, have the right to be heard. They have no interest in engaging with those people or debating them or debunking their claims. They have an interest in using force to silence them. It's an authoritarian political movement, American liberalism. And it's not just me saying this anecdotally. There's polling data, recent polling data that I've cited many times where there's a 40 or 45 point gap between Republicans and Democrats on the question of whether they want big tech to regulate and censor the internet in the name of stopping disinformation, but also whether they want the government to. Democrats overwhelmingly favor having big tech and the U.S. government censor the internet in the name of stopping disinformation, while Republicans overwhelmingly oppose it. The American right is not immune to censorship. I grew up in the 1980s. I came of age in the 1980s. One of the reasons I identified with the left more than the right when I was younger 
is because that was the age of the moral majority, which sought to censor all sorts of cultural sectors in the name of religious purity or moral superiority. And it was repellent to me and still is. And there are some residual factions on the right that believe in that sort of censorship. There's been some pernicious efforts to criminalize anti-Israel activism or pro-Palestinian activism. Red state governors have enacted really noxious laws that say that if you are a supporter of the boycott of Israel to end the occupation of Palestine, you're barred from receiving state contracts. All four federal courts that have ruled on those laws, fortunately, have ruled that they're unconstitutional. So I'm not saying that other political factions are immune from the impulse to censor. It's a normal human impulse to want to censor views you regard as particularly noxious. That's why the First Amendment had to guarantee the right of free speech, precisely because the founders knew that the temptation to censor is universal. But on the right, it's isolated. It's sporadic. It's confined to particular instances. And I think meets with a lot of resistance. In establishment liberalism, it's anything but isolated. Who are the political figures, the elected officials in the Democratic Party who ever speak out in opposition to censorship? Who are the people who are saying, I don't think, I don't trust Mark Zuckerberg and Google to police our discourse. It's almost like there's no opposition to it. You cannot survive in Democratic Party politics. Increasingly, you cannot survive even on the American left. The soft sort of pro-AOC Bernie left. Unless you maybe not support, but are willing to tolerate the censorship campaign. Speaking out against it, defending free speech, automatically subjects you to claims that you're on the right. The American left and American liberals now deem free speech to be a right-wing value. That is how fundamental this censorship orgy, this craze, this quest to silence dissent is to this political faction, the dominant political faction in Washington, the dominant political faction in our cultural institutions. This fight over whether Spotify will keep Joe Rogan is about a lot more than what will happen to Joe. Joe Rogan's going to be fine. He has a portable, gigantic audience that he will take to Rumble or some other platform that will guarantee him the right of free speech if Spotify decides it wants to eat his contract because some big music star or set of music stars unite to issue the same ultimatum. But if liberals succeed in getting Spotify to remove Joe Rogan from their platform, or even if they don't, even if they continue to pile up other victories, like Dan Bongino and others of that stature, this impulse to censor will only intensify. It's a really intoxicating power when you get to silence your political adversary. It's addictive. You don't stop. Once you are successful, the thirst intensifies the desire and feeds itself. And this is what we're seeing more and more and more. So I'm going to stop there. Um, that's my overview of these issues. And 
we should have uh, 20 or 30 minutes or so to try and take as many people in the queue as possible. So when you're up next, um, as soon as you see yourself uh, at the start of the queue, you have to unmute yourself. Just click the microphone icon at the bottom of your screen to unmute yourself, and we should be able to hear you. The first person is Joseph. Welcome, Joseph. Hey, Gwen. It's awesome to talk to you. I'm a huge fan of your reporting. There's so much I would love to ask, but I recognize there are time constraints, so I'll try to go quick. Uh, you've been critical of the hypocrisy of Republicans like Jim Jordan for slamming big tech monopolies for their oppressive censorship campaigns while simultaneously failing to pursue antitrust or similar legislation in Congress. While I completely agree with you that this is one of the most pressing issues of our times, as discussed uh, tonight, I also, like Jordan, come from the libertarian right, and I'm thus extremely wary of using state power in this manner, even using existing antitrust laws. It seems to me that these huge uh, companies are in many ways uh, one and the same with our regulators in the deep state. You've talked in the past about how um, it's not just MSNBC and CNN who employ ex-Intel operatives, but it's also Microsoft and Facebook and Twitter. Um, so I, I, I'm left wondering if empowering those people and the government to fight off companies is really going to solve any of our problems. So I'm curious what sort of a rebuttal you have to people like me uh, for whom the idea of using centralized government authority in this to solve this particular problem is a big hitch to get over. And I'm also curious what you think in particular should be done um, to ensure that the government, that the internet does have free speech going forward, whether you think that just breaking up companies will be sufficient or if um, there are further steps that we need to take to ensure a free and open internet. I know, um, People like Carl Casarda of InRange on YouTube have suggested something like a Bill of Rights for the internet, which is certainly an interesting idea. I don't know what that would look like. So I'm just curious to get your thoughts on all of this. It's a great question, and it is absolutely a very valid concern. I am most definitely very wary of any suggestion that the government should start to take steps to regulate or influence in any way companies that are in the business of either disseminating information or facilitating the free flow of ideas, because the minute you allow government to enter that realm, all kinds of mischief is possible. And I think to be fair for the moment, or at least generous for the moment, to the kinds of Republicans I'm criticizing, particularly Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan, who do make a big showing when they go on Fox News and wave the banner of let's fight big tech and let's break up big tech and stop big tech from continuing to censor conservative thought. And then when they're on the floor in the committees where the laws actually get written, they're very uh, obstructionist of any attempt to actually do any of that. They work with Google lobbyists from whom they take money. There's clearly a dichotomy between the public platform, the public profile and the private behavior, which is not abnormal for politicians. But it's something I think, as a journalist, I have an obligation to make people uh, be aware of. The, the problem is, I, you know, I think part of the right-wing hesitation to join hands with Democrats to break up or weaken or regulate or legislate against big tech, which is the only way to rein in their power, that's the only way that their power can be reined in. 
precisely because, and I'll get to this in a minute, to have monopolistic power means that you can crush any competitors, like we saw them do with Parler. The only way to rein them in is through legislation or enforcement of existing laws. You don't even need to enact new laws. There are already antitrust laws on the books. The concern that a lot of, the, the, the kind of good faith concern that Republicans have, some, in joining hands with Democrats, is that the actual motive that Democrats have in trying to regulate big tech is what I described earlier, which is their anger that big tech isn't censoring enough. And when Democrats, some Democrats, not all, but when some Democrats in Congress say, we want to regulate and break up big tech monopolies in violation of the antitrust laws, what they're trying to do is pressure these companies to censor more. And I empathize with the reluctance that, let's say, Jim Jordan has and people like him to join in that effort because to to support the democratic effort to regulate or legislate against big tech can be to unwittingly make the censorship problem worse because these companies know the only way to, to appease this, this legislative threat is to start censoring more or breaking them up or regulating them could be a backdoor into direct government control over these companies, which would make the problem worse. That's a valid concern. The reason though, that I ultimately don't, accept it is because there are actual Democrats antitrust concern. Now, you can be a libertarian in economic theory, and I think there are some more kind of purist libertarians who don't accept the idea that monopolies should be regulated. But I know a lot of libertarian economists and theorists who believe that Government should never intervene in the free market unless there's an emergence of actual monopolies because monopolies by their very nature destroy the idea of competition, which is fundamental to a free market. And this is why I find the parlor example so disturbing was because there was a competitor, a social media competitor to Facebook and Google and Twitter, and it was designed to cure the problems that consumers had with Twitter, which was that they were regulating too much and censoring too much. And that's the idea of a free market. You don't like how this company is offering their services, go create another company that offers different services and then let the market decide. And if there's real consumer demand for that other model, then you'll thrive. That's what a free market enables in theory. But what we saw there was Parler did thrive. There was consumer demand for what they were offering. And yet Google and Apple not by virtue of their social media sites, but by virtue of their integrated power over the downloading of apps and Amazon with their domination of the web services has the ability to destroy competitors. And Parler was off the internet within a matter of weeks. And the same thing is happening with Rumble, which you know I just happen to know about because it's a platform I believe in and I'm devoting a lot of efforts to fortifying Rumble is a competitor to YouTube, which is owned by Google. Now, if Google and YouTube want to do everything possible to crush Rumble as a competitor by undercutting their prices or offering more services, that's normal free market competition. But that's not what they're doing. Google doesn't just have YouTube. Google also has its search engine. 
And what they do in their search engine is they use their algorithms to make sure that if you search for something, you will never find a Rumble video. After the show, go and try and find any of the journalism I produced on Rumble by just typing in the general topic and it'll be on page 86 if it's anywhere. So once these companies integrate enough services that they can control the internet and prevent competition by supporting their power, you're not actually supporting free market economics, you're supporting its destruction. And there are Democrats in Congress, and especially the new chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan, who are serious about the antitrust angle. They're not looking to pressure these companies to censor more. They're concerned about the competitive aspects of the power that these companies have accumulated. And so I empathize with the concern that you express that you're suggesting might be motivating some of these Republicans who seem to have very different behaviors the one on Fox News versus the floor of the Congress. But if that really is the, the, if they really do believe that big tech has too much power and is abusing that power, then there's no point in complaining about it unless you're prepared to try and find solutions. And all I'm saying is, is that they say with one side of their mouth that they do have that concern and do want solutions. And then the other side of the mouth block any reform efforts. So I agree it's treacherous to allow the government to start regulating, but I also think the power of these companies, which is greater than most, if not all, sovereign nations, is also extremely menacing. You're totally right that the when Parler was deplatformed, it changed a lot of minds, including mine. Um, and I, I would be in favor broadly of antitrust regulation at this point. Is there anything else that you think should be done I'm just curious, as you, you personally, in, in regard to trying to keep the internet open, because there's so much more than just monopolies, or issues like banks deplatforming certain people, and what happens when nobody can donate to Alex Jones anymore, because Chase has decided he's too gross, they're not going to allow you to give money to him. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is becoming a serious concern. I mean... Financial services companies are joining now with liberal advocacy groups like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, and there's all these shady, you know, anti-extremist groups that are funded sometimes by George Soros or Pierre Amidiar and billionaires with a clear liberal agenda. Other times their funding is opaque and we don't know who's funding them. I know when I moved to Rumble with Tulsi Gabbard and Bridget Phetasy and several others, the Washington Post published this hit piece on Rumble trying to depict it as this sewer of disinformation and right-wing conspiracy theories. And they quoted this expert from this group I had never heard of that supposedly was this anti-disinformation group. And as soon as I started looking into them at all, investigating them at all, it became immediately apparent that they partner with the CIA, with British intelligence, with the EU, are funded, and they partner with Google and Facebook. So this was the group on which the Washington Post was relying to malign Rumble, which is a competitor of YouTube, was a group that's tightly aligned to Google. And so, so often that's what's happening is this whole disinformation matrix is being radically manipulated in order to justify this censorship power. I mean, I think that, you know, 
occasionally there are legislative solutions that seem appealing to me and content neutral, like the bill that just passed the Senate Judiciary Committee by a vote of 16 to 5 or 16 to 6. All Democrats plus Republicans like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley supported it. It's Amy Klobuchar's bill that would make it illegal for so for, for tech companies to engage in cross-platform discrimination to, in other words, if you have Google search terms, you're not allowed to suppress the, uh, the findings of your competitors. You have to treat all companies equally. That's a content-neutral fix. It, the current antitrust law doesn't bar that kind of discrimination. That seems palatable to me, but I think the much better way, the thing that excites me the most is the emergence of free speech competitors like Rumble, like Substack, like the app that we're talking on. And that's why I think preserving the ability to compete with big tech is so important. Look, if people want to use platforms that censor wildly and keep out anyone deemed by institutions of authority to be hateful or reckless or spreaders of disinformation. If people want that, have at it. Like they should have the right to go use Facebook, Google, and Twitter. But if there is a huge consumer demand, which I believe there is, for heterodox voices, for pieties to be questioned rather than affirmed, for debates to thrive rather than censorship efforts, then I think platforms like Rumble and Substack and, and Colin and others are going to thrive, but they're only going to thrive in a climate where there's competition, where competition is possible and where monopolistic power can't be marshaled to destroy it like it was done to Parler. So for me, my number one priority, my number one priority as a journalist, and if you want as an activist on behalf of free speech and free discourse, which I think all journalists should be, is to do everything possible to use and strengthen and encourage people to migrate to these platforms that defend these values and to simultaneously fight for the preservation of a climate in which fair competition is possible. So, you know, it's a broad question. I, I know like that was not full of huge numbers of specifics, but ultimately I'm not sure specific legislation or regulatory actions are the linchpin of that effort. I think it's more preserving the ability of these platforms that already exist and are already growing to continue to grow and thrive. It's a big question. I'm glad to hear some of your thoughts. Uh, thank you so much for all the work that you do. I'll, I'll get out thank of the way. Thank you, Joseph. It was a great exchange. I really appreciate your coming and posing such thoughtful questions. I'm going to go ahead and take the next caller. Um, Sometimes it's a little difficult to see. I think it's Matt. Go ahead and unmute yourself, Matt. All right. Can you hear me okay? Yep. All right. So I'm um, a big fan of yours, uh, big fan of uh, Joe Rogan's as well. And I just would say that, you know, it, it's been a platform for me that's really opened my mind to a lot of ideas, learned a lot about the world. Uh, people like you have changed my mind on uh, people like Julian Assange or uh, even Matt Taibbi, who's you know, changed my view of how the whole bank bailout situation um, played out, you know, all of that came, you know, as a source from, you know, the Joe Rogan show. So I, I think it's, it's a platform that's really meaningful. Um, and I'm one of those people who you mentioned is probably politically homeless a lot of the times. 
um, on different issues, feel different and differently about different things. And also somebody who grew up, you know, loving rock and roll and punk rock and, you know, listening to bands like Rage Against the Machine and, you know, kind of associated, you know, rock with a uh, healthy distrust of government and maybe big business and now big tech and big pharma. But it seems like, you know, more and more there, you know, when you hear a singular voice or singular message coming from all of these, um, you know, these entities that, you know, I, I associate, I have associated traditionally with, you know, the liberal uh, left and, and uh, the traditional liberal left on that. I, I guess one of the things that, you know, is hard for me to sort of wrap my mind around is how, you know, that evolution has taken place to, you know, almost ultimate trust in uh, these institutions, um, you know, as you mentioned, had been sort of captured, including, you know, um, I guess maybe music is adjacent to Hollywood in that respect. But I guess from your perspective, from going from the, the Tipper Gore days to now, what you see is maybe the, the prime driver of that in, in the in the traditional liberal psyche to you know what is now i guess the establishment liberal stance on many of these issues yeah it's such an important point you know i think um and i've been reflecting on this a lot that one of the things that as you get older and at some point maybe i i will i don't count myself as someone getting older but maybe if i'm i'm being honest i probably should uh, you start to realize is there's this assumption that everyone has the same historical memory that you have. And so whatever it is that you know, because you've lived through, you assume that everybody else has that same experience and has the same foundational ex- perception of how these issues play out. And it's just not true. There are millions and millions of people, millions and millions who only began paying attention to politics in the last five years. In part because that's just the natural cycle of things. People who are 16 or 18 or 20 reach an age when they start paying attention to politics. That's probably natural and normal. Every generation has a huge number of new people who start paying attention to politics who didn't before. But I think that the emergence of Trump is a critical factor, the most important factor in almost everything we're discussing, because so many people who only began paying attention to politics in 2015 and 2016, not because of age, but because of fear of Trump, because they got convinced that there was some kind of emergency or crisis in America's political culture that required paying attention, apolitical people, their political memory or their, their, their knowledge of American political history begins with 2015 and 2016. They don't really know much of, of what came before. And the nature of the Trump era was centered around this monomaniacal idea that there was this singular, unprecedented threat to all good things in the United States, Donald Trump, that he was the sole author of America's woes. And there was a binary choice. And everything about who someone is is determined by one metric and one metric only. Do you oppose Donald Trump with all of your might or do you not? And if you do, it means you're on the side of good, and if you don't, it means you're on the side of evil. And what that meant was that all of these institutions, because America, America's kind of ruling class, these centers of power, these power centers that, that make up the American establishment, have as their highest value stability, preservation of the, 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 the ruling order. 
which makes sense. That's what institutions of authority want to do is they want to preserve the distribution of power that places them at the top. And therefore the thing they hate most is instability, unpredictability. And Trump, if he was anything, was unstable and unpredictable. He wasn't a reliable preserver of the status quo the way Barack Obama was above all else. And so institutions of authority aligned against him almost unanimously. And that meant that people who viewed the world through that prism that I described, namely the only metric is are you for or against Trump, looked at these institutions like the CIA, like the FBI, like the corporate media that were very vehemently opposed to Trump. And they concluded that they must be good because they're against Trump. It obviously rehabilitated lots of different sects that had justifiably had their reputation destroyed, like neocons who have a new lease on life and who I really do believe are kind of the thought leaders of American liberalism because nobody remembers in terms of the people I'm describing with David Frum or Bill Crystal were doing and saying in 2002 or 2008. They only know the anti-Trump banner that they were waving, and therefore they assume that they're good too. And that meant that American liberalism, because of its single-minded opposition to Trump and its consequential embrace of American institutions, has become the kind of vanguard of institutional authority. They, They believe in American institutions. They have great reverence for them. And I, remember, I, I still am, you know, when I think about it, I'm amazed at the discourse that emerged around Robert Mueller, George Bush's FBI director, the director of the FBI at the time of 9-11 who rounded up American Muslims without due process based on these radical theories of executive power who was hated at the time, who went before Congress and guaranteed that the FBI had definitive proof of Saddam's weapons of mass destruction You weren't allowed to utter a peep of criticism about Robert Mueller, lest you were accused of disrespecting the men and women of the FBI who keep us safe. This was the ethos that emerged, like highly nationalistic, highly institutional, political culture that centered around respect for authority. And conversely, very little tolerance for any dissent from the pronouncements and decrees of authority which we're seeing manifest throughout the COVID pandemic as well, even more so. And what amazes me is somebody who came of age decades earlier, you know, in the 80s, as I was saying, or imagine people who came of age in the 60s. Matt Taibbi talks about this a lot as somebody who spent, you know, more than a decade as the star columnist of Rolling Stone magazine, that the politics of the 60s on the left was not just anti-authoritarian in its politics, but also in its culture, right? Like, that's part of the irony of the fact that it's now, like, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, who came out of the hippie music scene of the 60s in Woodstock and, you know, fuck the man and don't trust anyone over 30, that ethos, you know, now writing letters demanding that Spotify kick Joe Rogan off because of his dissent, It's bizarre. But, you know, Matt talks about how the comedy of the 60s and of the left was raunchy and transgressive and 
you know, very driven by this purposeful provocation toward institutional orthodoxy. And in the 80s, that was very much the ethos of which I identified. One of the big cultural controversies was Sinead O'Connor went on Saturday Night Live and she tore up a picture of the Pope and she became a hero of the left and hated on the right. This was the left-right dichotomy that cultivated my political sensibilities. The left was always the anti-institutional and anti-authoritarian political culture and the right was its opposite. And this is completely inverted, completely inverted. So it's now, you know, liberals and even leftists who demand that you obey the CDC, that you don't question Dr. Fauci, that you trust the FBI and the CIA. There's polling data, as I said, showing that they want not just big tech, but the government to censor the internet. Tipper Gore was a laughingstock among the left. Now Tipper Gore is like an avatar of American liberalism. You know, she, she just wanted warning labels on albums. She, she didn't want them pulled out of stores the way they want Joe Rogan taken out of stores. And Angela Nagel wrote this really great book called Kill All Normies, where she studied alt-right internet culture for more than a year. She really immersed herself in it. And the one of the main theories of the book, I highly recommend it, it's a short book. And it basically is asking, why did the alt-right become so appealing, especially to younger people? Like, How did that happen? That this far-right, quote-unquote, conservative ideology that was always supposed to be alienating to young people instead attracted so many. And what she said was that the left has become so puritanical, so intolerant. They issue all these more, more rules about private behavior, how you date, how you have sex, how you marry, what you can do in your private life, what you can say in public, like more rules than the Pope has in cyclicals that if you now want to transgress against authority, which is a natural tendency when you're 20 or 23, you don't go to the left anymore. You go to the left to conform and to obey. You go to the right. That's who's transgressive. And that alt-right internet culture was, it was funny and it was, you know, it didn't take itself seriously and it took joy in, in tweaking pieties. And that's what attracted so many people on the right. And I, I just want to share one anecdote because I read, this is a personal anecdote of mine that was eye-opening for me. Here in Brazil, where I live, um, Brazil has been a center-left country for the last two decades, at least, starting in 2002 the center-left Workers' Party, founded by Lula da Silva, a union leader, won four consecutive presidential elections, 2002, 6, 10, 14. So it's been a center-left country, even kind of a left-wing country, for two decades at least. Suddenly in 2018, it elects this far-right, kind of Trump-like, but more extreme anti-authoritarian figure in Jair Bolsonaro. Nobody thought Bolsonaro could ever possibly win national office in Brazil because he was so far out of step with Brazil's political sensibilities. So the conventional wisdom held. And I'll tell you the first time that I knew Bolsonaro was going to win. In 2017, I was on Twitter and I was talking to a Brazilian journalist and I referred to Bolsonaro as a fascist cretin. And he had been... Uh, his, his Twitter name had been used in, earlier in the thread, so he was following his own name, and he saw my tweet. 
And in response, he took my tweet and overneath, over the tweet, he quote tweeted it. And in English, he doesn't speak a word of English, but he went to Google Translate. He used this very homophobic phrase in Portuguese called, in Portuguese, it, it, if you translate it into English, it means burning the donut. It's basically a very crude term for anal sex. It's basically like calling a gay man a faggot. And he went and, and said, oh, I hear you burn the donut. Don't worry. Be happy. It was a very anti-gay comment. All the Brazilian serious media outlets, you know, manifested in my defense, denounced him for his homophobia, said how outrageous it was to attack a journalist by maligning his sexual orientation. And for the next month, at least, I was inundated, like on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, by email, by all these kids, Brazilian kids, like 18, 20, 22, they were making all these like gifts of a donut on fire. And they were like sending it to me constantly, whatever I tweeted, even in English, like there'd be thousands of images of burning donuts. And they weren't doing it to be malicious, like most of them. They were doing it because it was funny. They were like, Bolsonaro had given them license to say the things that these serious people were telling them they weren't allowed to say. And people don't like being told they're not allowed to say things or not allowed to think things. There's pleasure you get from tweaking authority. And I knew Bolsonaro was going to win. I saw the joy that people were getting from being involved in politics that were young, who were going to the right and not from the dreary, joyless left. And this is an absolute inversion of, of cultural ethos, but also of political sensibilities. I cannot believe that free speech is now a right-wing value. It is a right-wing value. In Brazil, if I defend free speech, I get called a fascist. In the U.S., it's a little more subtle. The left likes still to pretend that they believe in free speech, but they're even giving up that pretense. And this cultural inversion is very palpable. It's becoming more and more extreme. And that's why when people say, what happened to you? You know, I don't want to invoke the cliche like, oh, I didn't leave the left, the left left me. I don't think the left did leave me. But what changed is the political fabric, and it's largely because of Trump, because if you think about it, if you're a member of a political faction and you convince yourself that you are battling not just people with a different ideology, but you're battling a Hitler-like figure who leads a, a fascist movement of white nationalists bent on destroying American democracy, which is what the standard, almost obligatory view in American liberalism is about the political reality in the United States. They believe they're engaged in this world historic existential crusade for all things decent in American political life. It's a very self-glorifying image. It's also a very tempting one. It's fun to believe that you're on the front lines of some world historical battle as opposed to just engaged in banal political squabbles about the capital gains tax. That's why it's so appealing to people. It's very melodramatic. But they do believe it. If you believe that, that you're actually fighting in defense of American democracy against a fascist takeover of the United States by white nationalists, it almost makes sense that you become authoritarian. Like, it's, if, 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 if Trump really were this Hitler-like figure coming to put racial minorities and liberals into camps, censorship probably would be justified. And, and, and even more extreme measures, like criminalizing your opponents as insurrectionists 
all the things they're doing. It makes sense within the logic of their world, but the world is just based on this mythology that has been implanted in them by people who are profiting in all kinds of ways, both in terms of power and profit from doing so. And it's completely turned American political life on, on its head. Thank you for that. that that's, uh, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. And I think uh, what you said about the puritanical left and, and really the ideology, and I like what you said, mythology, you know, it, it reminds me a lot. And I was thinking about this a lot this week that, you know, in all through history, um, you know, governments have used religion as sort of a cudgel to uh, get people to comply with authoritarianism or other, um, you know, things that they, they believe to be fighting against evil or, or some existential threat. Um, and I think a lot of what is being used right now uh, in that leftist ideology um, is being used much the same. So um, maybe somebody uh, if someone's orchestrating this or many people are orchestrating this with, with an eye to history, I think everyone would be wise to do the same. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, I think it's the lack of historical political knowledge that is the cause of so many of these, uh, problems. Thank you very much, Matt. It was a great question. I really appreciate your participating. Uh, next up is citizen. So let me try and get you into the queue. Um, Hello. Can you hear me? Go ahead. Yes, you're on. Hi, Glenn. Yeah, I just want to make a quick comment uh, because I like the direction that you guys moved the conversation in. And then I kind of want to pull it back around towards the Joe Rogan situation um, with a question. Um, As far as what you guys were talking about, yes, liberalism has completely, completely changed. There are not Democrats like Frank Church, Paul Wellstone, uh, Kucinich, McGovern, you know, even even the more center type uh, Democrats as uh, Kennedy, uh, you know, the Kennedys. Uh, and that kind of thing. And I think that liberalism obviously uh, moved, uh, you know, made its final transition, or at least it made its current transition in the 90s uh, in the Clinton administration. And then it was really solidified, uh, you know, after 9-11 and even the Snowden revelations uh, that you were very intimately involved in, uh, and I'm sure got called all sorts of names as traitor and, and, and this and that for reporting uh, some of this stuff, because I saw a lot of my Democratic friends just completely go wacko uh, over, um, you know, uh, what Snowden did. And they, you know, they, they kind of forgot all of their, you know, original values. And, and this What's happening now in COVID, I just think is just almost like a complete, you know, takeover that uh, of, of it is, as you guys say, where you cannot criticize or make any co- uh, conversation. And then a little personal anecdote. My dad was a, a journalism professor uh, at uh, one of the main universities. And I remember in the 90s when I was a young pup, he told me, he said, you know, this is really driving me crazy because everybody is moving, you know, away from long form journalism and moving into, you know, like the broadcasting, and it was really all centered around PR. He was just like, everything is becoming uh, very PR-oriented. And if you watch the mainstream media that you, you've been citing that's powerful, you know, for other reasons than obviously viewership, uh, which is one of the one of the things that bothers people about Rogan, uh, 
it, it, it is. It's one huge PR campaign that you see night in and night out. Uh, night out. It's not like watching Democracy Now. Uh, the other quick comment I wanted to say was about Malone. He never said he was actually the inventor of the mRNA. He just said that he was involved in, in, in helping make the mechanisms. But it's kind of like that Chomsky thing where he got tagged with the most influential influential intellectual of all time and i just it followed him everywhere he went he always was trying to say yes i never said that and this and that and the other but my question really kind of revolves back around uh to you know what's going on right now and the, and the the topic of the room was what, what happened with joe rogan i do think the large audience has something to do with it but i think that more importantly and i know you touched a little bit on this uh it has to do with the narrative um, and that, and, and the, the vaccination scenario that is so prominent and so important in the mainstream uh, media, no matter how you fall on it. Uh, but this misinformation is coming hugely from the mainstream uh, media, as well as, yes, there's other, you know, quackery and crazy stuff out there and who knows. But one of the things I was curious about is why is, uh, and maybe you can shed some light because I don't know, I, I read um, uh, Robert Kennedy's book on Fauci and I was really stunned and I followed a lot of it. This whole book is footnoted. Uh, a lot of this uh, information that goes back to Senate testimony, co congressional testimony, where, you know, Congressman Waxman and Pelosi were just hammering on him during, you know, the AIDS crisis, you know, that there was scandal about AZT and the pushing of that drug above everything else and this and that and the other. And it, it just when you read this, you see so many parallels. And then and then, you know, like uh, the. Uh, the situation of, of of all these guys that are constantly saying vax, 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 vax on the television and their ties to the money that that is, you know, used uh, for research grants and this and that and the other. How come nobody is talking about this? And I mean, we do get the bit about, oh, yeah, Fauci said masks, you know, cloth masks in the beginning. But, you know, this guy has a huge history of of problematic scenarios uh, in his rise through through the uh um you know uh the health industry um you know uh, from the political end and i know that the only place i could even find uh rfk jr interview was on on bannon's rumble you know which i actually found uh using uh either it was either DuckDuckGo or brave search so you can actually find some of this stuff you you definitely can't go straight through google so i just don't i, I know a lot of people are, are upset with him because he you know got onto the vaccine thing he said he's not anti-vax but uh you know because of the he said autism can be caused by some vaccines and it's more of a child thing uh that is is of concern that he's just gotten, you know, maligned heavily. Why is it that he can't get on uh, anywhere or he's not getting on anywhere? Is there something I'm missing about him? Because when I look on the internet, I just see, oh, he's anti-vax. He, he just thinks crazy thoughts, but it doesn't have any real, there, I don't see any real information coming back uh, on this because it just seems like there's a lot of very important information that's completely getting ignored by, you know, a lot of the media uh, concerning this scenario. And I think that's one of the reasons Joe Rogan is getting dinged is because he's he's highlighting some of it, you know, like he did with Malone and uh, the other guy was Peter McCullough and such. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Those are some uh, great points. I'm going to just try and touch on a couple of them, you know, First of all, just to uh, segue from the last 
comment in the last discussion about the inversion of, of liberal political culture, you can really see it in Fauci himself. The idea that Fauci is sort of the new Robert Mueller, the unassailable figure of authority who shall not be questioned, who only shall be blindly believed and trusted, is particularly bizarre to me. My first political experience as an adult, when I was at NYU Law School in the early 1990s, it was kind of the heyday of ACT UP activism. And, you know, ACT UP activism was really sophisticated activism. It began as, you know, kind of an angry protest movement against the Reagan administration for being quite negligent about the AIDS epidemic, largely due to the fact that it was affecting mostly gay men and prostitutes and populations that wielded very little power that people weren't even comfortable discussing. It was kind of an angry protest movement, but it evolved. It like morphed into this very sophisticated uh, movement that had a lot of activists who had become very knowledgeable about the FDA process, about research into treatments and cures. They were not doing it for any reason other than the fact that they were infected with a virus and they didn't want to die. And a lot of them were very smart. So they went to war against the bureaucracy. And one of the main villains at that time was, was Anthony Fauci. He was the primary government bureaucrat in charge of the government's response to AIDS. And ultimately, these activists developed a reasonably constructive relationship with him. But for a long time, he was regarded as one of the main antagonists of the effort to accelerate experimental AIDS treatment, to make the government devote more resources, to trying to find an effective treatment or a cure. And so to turn around and watch him of all people be venerated by the same left liberal political movement that only 25 years ago I watched view as one of their prime enemies is is kind of surreal and, and very reflective of what has happened. You know, I think the issue that we haven't talked about, at least during this show, is the motive for censorship. And it was raised by several of your points. Like, the what is the reason they're so obsessed with excluding like let's not let's say like Alex Berenson goes on Tucker Carlson and speaks about vaccines and people say he's not qualified he's not a virologist he's not trained in medicine okay but what about Dr. Malone so you as I said earlier it doesn't matter you can have this semantic debate about whether he's the founder of these vaccines or not and as you say he doesn't claim it he's certainly very well he's exactly the kind of person you would want engaged in the debate about crucial matters. And that's especially true when even Dr. Fauci's most enthusiastic defenders acknowledge that he got a lot wrong. We all remember that he said, don't use masks in March and of 2020. And I think it's because he purposely lied to the public because he didn't want people panic buying masks. He wanted them available to healthcare workers. Maybe it's that he just didn't understand at the time, the relationship between masks and the transmissibility of the virus, it's one or the other. Whichever one it is, he still got it wrong. And if it's true that this is a novel coronavirus whose complexities mean that public health officials are going to get things wrong, that's all the more reason to demand that dissenters be heard, especially qualified ones. So what is the reason for excluding them? Now, this argument that, well, we need to exclude them 
because their views are so dangerous that if people are allowed to hear people questioning the efficacy or safety of vaccines, they will be more vaccine hesitant and more, more people will die is an argument that no one believes. And I'll give you the reason why. I remember really well during the torture debate, the debate over whether the U.S. government should be using torture. There was always, for me, the overarching immorality of torture, which for me settled the debate. Torture should be illegal and a taboo because it's inherently immoral to torture human beings in captivity. But there was always a secondary debate about efficacy. And the argument was, even if you don't believe in the moral prohibition, you still shouldn't use torture because it doesn't work. When you torture people, they don't tell you the truth. They tell you what they think you want to hear in order for the torture to stop. Very similar debate uh, dichotomy exists with the censorship debate. For me, it doesn't matter if censorship works or not. I think it's immoral and unethical and inherently dangerous to silence people and prevent people from dissenting because the capacity for human error or for abuse of power is so high. And one of the few checks against it is the ability to ensure that authority figures have to permit dissent, that it's never permissible to engage in censorship, even if it quote-unquote works, meaning produces some positive outcomes. But this idea that if you ban ideas, it makes them go away, has never been true, and everybody knows that. It makes it more alluring. When an idea is banned by authorities, it makes it seem more dangerous. That's why that's why 40 million people watched Dr. Malone on Joe Rogan's show because Twitter had just banned him the day before and it made it seem like he must have some really important information if Silicon Valley wants him banned, even though he has high credentials. So people go and watch and go and listen and seek out the things that are banned. The top uh, National Academy of Scientists in the UK, the Royal Society, issued this warning this month urging that media corporations and social media platforms stop censoring quote-unquote anti-vaccine disinformation because not only doesn't it work, it's actually harmful. This is what they said. Quote, governments and social media platforms should not rely on content removal for combating harmful scientific misinformation online. There is little evidence, they said, that calls for major platforms to remove offending content will limit scientific misinformation's harms And in fact, such measures could even drive it to harder to address corners of the internet and exacerbate feelings of distrust in authorities. In a pandemic, you need people to trust Dr. Fauci. You need people to trust the World Health Organization and the CDC. Trust will happen if all views can be aired, if Dr. Malone can be heard from, and then Dr. Fauci or Dr. Bolensky or whoever says why that's wrong, and then people using their capacity of reason decide what they think is correct. When you see institutions of authority banning and prohibiting any questioning of their decrees, the normal reaction is to distrust those institutions. They seem tyrannical and thuggish, not trustworthy and benevolent. So people know this. This is not a new observation. So the question then is, why is there this this driving need to prevent people from questioning vaccines? When it clearly isn't this censorship working, there's still a vaccine-hesitant population that's pretty significant. It's well, the same you know, question. Well, it's just, let me just let me just say, like, it's the same question that I have 
that about why is it that even in the Omicron environment, where we know that vaccinated people are frequently contracting and transmitting the virus, we still want to fire people who refuse to get the vaccine. We still want to prevent them from going into public places or getting on planes, even though we know there's no scientific justification since vaccinated people are at great rates transmitting and contracting and transmitting the virus. They, everybody knows what I just said. I'm not privy to some specialized knowledge. So what is the reason for trying to stigmatize unvaccinated people when they clearly don't provide a threat in a vaccinated world in the world of Omicron? It's the same reason people want to censor, even though that they know it doesn't achieve the ends that they claim. It's all about power. It's about the ability of institutions of authority to issue orders. Orders are only powerful if there's a punishment for disobeying them. And so when the CDC says, go get vaccinated, and people refuse, that order loses its potency if there's no punishment, if there's no cost to disobeying. The same way that there's no punishment if you say people shouldn't be questioning vaccines, someone does it. They have to lose something. That's what power is. Power is the ability to punish or deprive somebody of something who defies your will. That's what censorship is about. That's what vaccine mandates and passports are about. It's about trying to preserve power in the hands of these institutions that has nothing to do with the public health or science or the social good. I 100% agree with what you're saying because uh, there, there's so much disinformation, like I said, coming just from the mainstream media. And as days go on and days go on, we're finding more of that. And, you know, the, the, you really hit it on the head when you talked about how vaccinated people, uh, of course, they're spreading the virus. I mean, it's because it, it, they're catching it. And, and it's like, how would, what would there be some sort of like wall, you know, between the virus and, and, and your breath that would keep you from doing it? It just it's absolutely insane. But they've got people believing this. And you're still hearing this constantly on the mainstream media when it, everybody knows it's BS. Everybody, uh, you know, c- can can see or not everybody, but a lot of people. I mean, they're still calling ivermectin a horse pill. You know, they've mounted, they've moved from, I heard a Democratic strategy the other day saying, yeah, otherwise, what are you going to do instead? You're going to take a horse pill? You know, they, they've moved away from the paste and now it's a pill. But I really am curious uh, for, from your perspective, is there a reason? Because I have, I have done a lot of following of links uh, uh, from uh, the RFK book, RFK Jr. Is he just like uh, considered uh, media poison uh, because of his, uh, what, his vaccine status about autism? Is, and, you know, I, I've seen people, their little proof that autism isn't caused by any kind of vaccines is that the CDC says it's not. And I mean, literally, I've seen people link to that. And all it is, is the CDC saying vaccines don't cause autism. But I mean, is there a reason? I mean, it just seems to me the book is 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 pretty damning. And I mean, uh, it, some might say even hyperbolic, you know, but I, I it just it's so there's so much there. I can't believe nobody, nobody is talking to him. The only person I've seen talk to him is, is Steve Bannon. Yeah, I mean, the book, um, you know, the book is, you know, obviously it sold a lot of copies. I believe it was on the New York Times bestseller list for at least a couple of weeks. I think that there has been a stigma around RFK Jr. In part because he isn't just a 
dissenter from COVID orthodoxy his anti-vaccine views. And I think it's legitimate to call him anti-vaccine. I think that term has been wildly distorted to include anyone questioning any COVID uh, orthodoxies. But in his case, I mean, I think he would self-describe that way. In general, there's just a concern that people who spread distrust about vaccines in general can do harm to the public good because vaccines have proven effective in preventing humans from contracting and dying of many diseases and and spreading distrust about vaccines in general has been uh, stigmatized for that reason. But, you know, again, I mean, I've read Robert uh, RFK Jr.'s uh, articles. I've listened to him on YouTube. And when I decided to go and get the vaccine for myself, and when I made those choices in conjunction with my husband for my children, the reason I was confident in my ability to make those choices is precisely because I have the ability to go listen to people like RFK Jr. and other people who were in dissent and are in dissent about all of these vaccine pieties, and that that gave me the confidence to believe that I had sufficiently exposed myself to all sides of the debate and could make an informed decision, something that I never would have had confidence in had there been some full-scale, hard, hard censorship regime that prevented me from exposing myself to those other views. That's why it's so important. Um, all right, let me try and take one and possible two more calls, but for sure one. Uh, next up is Harvey. Go ahead, Harvey. Just one second. You should be in the queue in a second. Hi, Glenn. Uh, good to be on your show. And I, I, I can't agree more with the, some of the things that have come up during this discussion, but one of the things that I... I've noticed, and I, I like to write and comment on things on the internet, as most people do, but one of the things I've noticed about this is, like, it's curbing, this whole censorship thing is curbing discussion across, like, multiple different uh, areas in, in that I can't even, even though I'm, like, I've gotten all the vaccinations and everything, if I address the perspective that, say, vaccination on its own may not be the solution for this pandemic. Like it could help, obviously, even, even in the Omicron stage, like you were saying, where we know that, that vaccinated people transmit the virus. The, the, the solution, the orthodox solution is still like, shut up and just, you know, don't say anything about bad about vaccines and take your vaccine and, and sit over there. And it's like, well, well, wait a minute. What about say like, changing how the workplace functions, like giving people mandatory sick days so that they don't go to work sick? How about giving those days to healthcare workers? How about improving healthcare worker, you know, coverage, having more providers so that you can actually give healthcare workers time off? Because in most cases, there aren't enough to, you know, give time off when something like this happens. So, and, and we, we, we've, for 12 years, We've been saying to everybody, hey, everybody should get a flu vaccine. But according to statistics, we, we no more than about 50% of the country has ever taken a flu vaccine. So what, are, what were they expecting? They weren't expecting to get everybody to, you know, take a vaccine. They, have, they don't care. They, they, the only reason that they care now is because the economy, it, it, it's grinding to a halt because people are, you know, 
unable to work or, or don't have to work, I guess, in some cases. And because the healthcare system is grinding to a halt because we can't keep up with the number of deaths because it was underfunded and undermanned. And, and I can't even discuss that sort of thing in general, because essentially what happens is, is that uh, as soon as you, you know, mention anything about vaccines in the negative, you're, you're cut off. It's like, oh, you must be anti-vax. No, no, no. I've gotten all the vaccinations. I just don't think this is the solution. You can't even have that discussion. How do we, how do we get, like, how do we even get past that? Do we just, it, because as you were saying, it, it, it seems like you, you wait a bit and suddenly these verboten topics suddenly become orthodox again. Like, how, how are we getting to that? How are we going to, how can we speed that up? Can we, <laughs> I don't even know. It's, it's insanity. Yeah, you know, there's this fascinating dynamic, which is that institutions of authority love to whine and complain about the fact that they're no longer trusted, right? The media does this constantly. The corporate media always whines about the fact that people are willing to go believe things on the internet instead of listening in rapt attention and trusting everything that they say. They see all the polls showing that people no longer trust them. And they're resentful about it. They're angry about it. They think it's unjust. They blame all these other people for it. They do everything except ask themselves what role they played in the loss of trust. And obviously, a media that endorsed the falsehoods that led to the invasion of Iraq, who venerated the experts that led us into the financial collapse, that wiped out the economic security and wealth of an entire generation, maybe permanently in the United States, the ability to have a real middle class, and then who has performed in all kinds of atrocious ways over the last five years in the name of combating Trump, is an institution that deserves to have lost trust because of their behavior, but they never can recognize that. So you look at public health officials, you know, and I've talked about before, for me, the turning point was we all remember being told steadfastly for the first four months of the pandemic, it is your moral duty not to leave home to the point where they turned that douchebag into a celebrity, a hero, because he dressed up as the Grim Reaper and he went and shamed families who went to deserted beaches in the sun outdoors because they were worried about the mental health of their children from being cooped up at home all day and figured it would be safe to go socially distance at the beach. That the, the prohibition on staying at home was so extreme that you weren't even allowed to go to a funeral of someone who died in your family, a beloved one, because nobody could leave their house. And then suddenly George Floyd was killed by the Minneapolis Police Department and people poured out into the streets by the thousands, one on top of the next in densely packed street protests, chanting and yelling And everyone in the public health apparatus was too afraid to say that that wasn't a good idea and, in fact, found ways to encourage it. Everyone remembers that complete politicization of public health messaging. And I think even more damaging, even though it's subtle, is that we all remember being told that the way out of this pandemic is a vaccine. And that people said there's no way Donald Trump can develop a vaccine in time for the end of the year, as he's saying, and then he did. The vaccine, we were told, was 95% effective in preventing anyone from even getting the 
virus. The CDC said if you're vaccinated, you can throw away your masks and burn them indoors, outdoors. You're free to go. That the vaccine was the liberation. And none of that turned out to be true. The vaccines don't prevent transmission or or contracting the virus in any meaningful degree. I do believe they prevent serious sickness or health, obviously not in all cases, but to a substantial degree. It didn't come close to ending the pandemic the way that we were told. And so much of what we were told along the way has proven to be wrong over and over and over and over. And then on top of that, people see that they're trying to force internet platforms and media corporations to bar anybody, even people with the highest credentials, from questioning what it is that they're saying. Is there any wonder that people don't trust these institutions, these public health institutions, given this erratic and authoritarian behavior? It would be irrational to trust them. And so I agree with you completely. I find it absolutely bizarre that if you say it's time to go back to normal, that you're against mandatory vaccines, that you're against mandatory masking of kids in school, that that somehow makes you anti-vax, when to me, the whole basis, at least for me, of that view is that I do believe in the efficacy of vaccines sufficient to get back to normal life. And to me, the anti-vax view seems to be the people saying we're not ready to get back to normal, even though we have the vaccines, because they don't trust that the vaccines work. So I think you're absolutely right. Like We may not agree on every last component. And I do think you're right that there has been an amazing opportunity to question how we administer public health in this country, how we administer labor rights, all these opportunities that the political class could have had to usher in policies that previously would have been very difficult that were completely squandered because the only things that were permitted were listen to Dr. Fauci, keep your mask on, take the vaccine and shut up. I agree with that completely. And that has fostered distrust um, and I think deservedly show. All right, let me take the last uh, call. Thank you very much for that uh, question, by the way. Uh, the last call, I'm having trouble seeing the name. It's Banyan. Go ahead. Yes, thanks, Glenn. Um, what, what you just said actually uh, feeds right into to, to what I want to talk about. Um, because over the course of the last months, um, when I would bring up ideas like that to just about anybody around me, and I, I mean, I, I'm talking really what I consider at least very smart people and very well-informed, I thought, people, um, I'm immediately shut down. I mean, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about, you know, whether it's my idea or whether it's ideas from people that I trust and, and, and respect, like you or Matt Taibbi or, and so forth. Um there's this, it just seems to be this, I don't know if it's mass psychosis, like we were talking, you know, like it's been said before or what, but um, it's, it's, it's been really disheartening. And so I've, I've started drawing again. And so I think my question is, what do you think the role of art is? Visual art, you know, one of the callers brought up um, Rage Against the Machine, you know, we can all remember those lyrics. Um, which is, I think, a beautiful, you know, painting, drawing, a catchy song can pull people in, um, almost disarm them, at least for a minute, uh, because they respond differently, I think, to art, whether it's visual or songs, um, than maybe to like an immediate discourse, right? Um, so I, instead of like, for instance, the last time I tried to say, uh, I said, hey, you know, Glenn Greenwald brought up a great point about this, this whole cost-benefit analysis with cars, um and how we and basically everything in life that we do we have this cost benefit analysis but we don't have that 
with COVID, what is, what's that about? Like, can we have a conversation about that? And I'm immediately shut down, immediately shut down. I mean, like nine out of 10, if not 10 out of 10 times. So again, I, I stopped talking about it. I have a degree in art. I'm an art teacher, a high school art teacher. And so I started drawing and I got this tiny little Instagram, just little, hardly, you know, hundred followers or something like that. I just started drawing figures who I want to, um, no pun intended, draw attention to. Um, such as you, uh, Julian Assange, the Donzinger case, um, Cornell West, and and just posting them without any other, without anything but the name. And I've gotten some feedback, some direct messages from from the same people that I would try to have this discourse with, and they would go, "Wow, that's a great drawing. I need to. I, I'm I'm going to look that guy up." And and I've had I've I've even heard from colleagues like, "Well, you know, your drawings are really." Uh, a conversation piece around the dinner table our families are talking about these people like do you know them do you not and who is this and so i just wondered what your thoughts were in terms of um what role potentially artists have to play in maybe fighting you know this or helping uh, as a piece of the puzzle to fight this sort of slide into authoritarianism that we're seeing i mean it's a fantastic question it, it really brings up a lot of different thoughts and and it's a little bit off the beaten path of the kind of question that typically is included in these sorts of political discussions, which is why I appreciate it even more because it forces some more thinking than than questions that, that are that are that are more typical. So let me just share a couple of impressions that I have. Uh, Noam Chomsky is probably the person, at least for me, that I've heard and read who has talked the most about this in the most compelling way, that there's often an assumption the people who are the best educated, meaning go to the best schools, the most prestigious schools, have the most degrees, will be the most resistant to being propagandized because they have highly developed faculties of critical reasoning. And in fact, in so many ways, the opposite is true. That the more you immerse yourself in these institutions, the more your brain is trained and molded to be in full conformity with elite culture and you lose the ability to critically evaluate it because you're so immersed in it. In 2011, Chris Hayes, who is now the host of a primetime MSNBC show and has been that for many years and is just a completely indistinguishable Democratic Party hack. Ten years ago, when he was a writer at The Nation, and he had a weekend show on MSNBC that they didn't care about, so he was able to do what he wanted. He was a really interesting thinker. And he wrote this book called Twilight of the Elites, the purpose of which, one of the purposes of which, was to warn that there's this concept that he called cog- uh, cognitive capture, by which he meant that institutions of authority, elite institutions, are so well-constructed over so many years to co-opt your brain, that no matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how aware you are of how it functions, no matter how devoted you are to resisting it in advance, if you immerse yourself in a particular institution of authority, an elite institution, eventually it will subsume your thinking. You will adopt all of its preconceptions. You'll spend your day talking to people who share that worldview, all of your incentives, what you get rewarded, how you get punished will continuously train you to adopt its piety so that at some point it will cognitively capture how you think. I remember asking him at the time, 
I really like that book. I read this book. I really, I interviewed him. I, I said I, for the book about the book. I said I think it's really persuasive. It, he was right about to become a primetime host for MSNBC. I said you're now going to become a highly paid full time employee of the Comcast Corporation. How are you going to safeguard against this? You're saying it's inevitable that it's in- inescapable. What is your plan for resisting it? And he said, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. And I think we see the, the, the results of that, that it is really true that the more you just constantly think in a particularized way that society tells you is the best and highest and most elevated and rewarded way of thinking, the more you lose the ability to critically evaluate whether or not it's leading you to a place of truth. And I don't want to romanticize kind of like working class culture in a way that seems patronizing. So I'm just going to tell you this story that was eye opening for me. In 2017, in the summer of 2017, I was in a suburb of Milwaukee in Wisconsin, like a working class suburb, because I was working on a project that didn't pan out. And that was right when The Intercept had its big scandal because it published top secret NSA documents from the source who turned out to be a reality winner and the reporters and editors who worked on the story were careless in how they handled the documents and she was caught and the intercept was blamed and I was in a cafe like on a kind of just diner and I know this seems cliche but this really happened and the New York (laughs) Times published a story about this controversy with the intercept and the documents that she had provided the intercept the point of which was that Russia had supposedly been trying to hack into Americans' electoral system. And the people at the next table who I was eavesdropping on as they were just, you know, it was the top New York Times story, so it came over their phone. Obviously, they didn't know who I was. They didn't recognize me, so I was able to eavesdrop them talking about the New York Times story on The Intercept. And what they were saying was, and these were, like, obviously working-class people, not immersed in politics. They were saying, yeah, you know, with all these stories about Russia... It's just so hard to know what is true and what isn't. It always comes from anonymous sources. You just never know like what people's interest is and what they're saying. They never present any evidence. It's all done with assertions. All this stuff with Russia, you just don't know what to believe. And I remember thinking that it's so much wiser and just like so much more grounded and critically minded than anything that you would hear if you signed on to Twitter and listened to all the people paid highly and think tanks and media corporations and even in government who talk about the same thing are all absolutely convinced that everything they're absorbing from the CIA laundered through the Washington Post and NBC is completely true. And so I really do think that anything that gets your brain interacting with the world in a different way than the kind of scripted narrative and discourse approach that elite institutions want you to get hooked into, whether it's art or music or comedy or meditation or religion or spirituality or like any new age stuff, anything that's just that looks at the world through a different prism is an inherently constructive thing to do just because you will start to realize that there's always more than one way to look at things. And I think that the, ultimate potency of propaganda is convincing you that there's only one way 
And that's why I, I, I wrote a, a, a column once in 2014 that I regard as kind of my ultimate expression of why I regard censorship as so pernicious. And my point that I made in it was that at the heart of censorship lies hubris. It's like, if you look at the history of American, uh, of human intellectual evolution, it's nothing but error. You know, one generation believes it has discovered absolute truth and the next generation comes to regard it as some gross moral or intellectual error and rejects it and adopts something else. Censorship requires you to believe that you alone have escaped that process, that historical cycle, that you actually have the ability to apprehend truth in such an absolute and and certain way that you are confident and comfortable banning anyone from saying anything different than the thing you've come to believe is true. You know, I have so many views that I strongly believe that I fight for, that I advocate for, that I work for, that I risk for, a lot of things I really believe in, but I could never imagine ever getting to the point where I believe that what I think in, uh, and 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 view about something is so unquestionably true that nobody should be permitted to oppose it or question it upon pain of being punished or silenced or censored. It's such hubris to believe that you've discovered that. And I think that ultimately comes from constantly being told that there's only one way to think about things, one way to look at things, which is a really powerful thing to get people to believe because you can manipulate them and control them more easily. And so any kind of activity, drawing, art, or any of the things you asked me about, I think are inherently good. And that was Matt Taibbi's point is so much of culture and art and comedy is no longer transgressive. It's designed to be conformist. And we saw that with the freak out of Dave Chappelle. You see with these late night hosts who are supposed to be comedians and yet sound like Nancy Pelosi's well-behaved grandson, you know, like (laughs) affirming every liberal orthodoxy that exist all these different ways of looking at the world are all becoming subsumed by political orthodoxy and i think so much is being lost as a result of that and it's a great note to end on uh the question that you asked so i really appreciate that yeah thanks glenn i, I really appreciate that response man I, and I was watching saturday night live the other night and they're like squirting horse paste into their mouth i mean this is just woven into the fabric of this this, you know, it, it's so ingrained. Um, and I appreciate what you said about, you know, uh, being in these institutions, because I, I remember that, that really hit home with me and I haven't even thought of it, but I, I think I've had to claw my way out of that right over the years. I'm 46. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so much. And if, if you want to check it out, I'm not selling anything, by the way, I'm not trying to make any money off this. In fact, I won't sell anything. Um, but yeah, if, if, if your portrait got a lot of a lot of good attention, if you want to check it out, it's boys underscore art. It's on Instagram. But again, not selling anything, man. Yeah, no, but I appreciate thanks. that. If you could, uh, if you if you send me the link by email, um, I'd love to check it out and uh, would happy to happy to promote it. I really appreciate the question. Um, I hope you have a great night. Th- and thanks, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so that's going to conclude our show for the evening uh we went two hours i which is a sign of how engaging and enjoyable i really found the conversation which is always driven by the quality of the questions and comments which were extremely high tonight i'm super appreciative of the people who step up and participate in the program it's what makes it uh exciting for me and i also really appreciate the people who continue to come gonna certainly try and be on a much more regular schedule again now that we've gotten into the new year 
um, having the show at least weekly, along with the one I co-host with Q on Thursday. So thank you again for to everybody. If I didn't get you in the in the queue, I really apologize. Come back uh, next week, and I will definitely try. Have a great evening, everybody. Bye bye.